0: Hallelujah, hallelujah, we know that that's going to be the, the song that we sing uh, for all of eternity. Let's turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, and uh, where we can honestly say this week that we are studying the book of Revelation. After so many weeks of saying we're in this interlude period, um, we, uh, we want to begin looking Um, for real, at the third segment of this book of Revelation. We saw, as we went through it in chapter 1, the things that have been. This was the message to John. And then we looked at the things that um, are, and that was the message to the churches that we saw in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And then we stated that between 3 and 4, there was a transition that went to the things that will be, and that is the message of the future. And that before we went there, I wanted to be able to look at at least briefly, though it was a little bit long, brief moment, um, of looking at biblical prophecy, having an introduction to biblical prophecy, because I believe that many people don't fully understand, don't fully rightly divide the book of Revelation, because they haven't done a study of the rest of prophecy. And many times, honestly, um, people who teach prophecy are teaching prophecy, as a result of reading somebody's commentary about prophecy. And so rather than having done the study of the whole thing themselves, they've, they've, they've kind of cut the corner and they've said, you know, I don't understand all this, so I'm going to grab somebody that I think I can trust, which is not bad, which is not a wrong thing, and I'm just going to take what they have. And so therefore, positions propagate on and on and on, whether some people really fully understand them or not, and they go on with them. And I say all that as a precursor to the what we're going into, because in John chapter 4, it is a transitional moment to this message of the future, in where we're going to start having some debates over um, how you interpret things. And so, as, we, as Steve has already read, in John chapter 4, or John 4, I, I keep saying John, I apologize, John wrote it. Anyways, the, the revelation given to John. But anyways, Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, we see in the very beginning... It says that John says, there's where we got John, John says, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold a throne set in heaven. Now, <clears throat> I am clearly a pre-trib, premillennial, baptistic believer. Okay, now I say all that to throw all those labels out there if they mean anything to you. Okay, if they don't mean anything to you, praise God, it doesn't really matter. Okay, but to those who understood them, that meant that going into this, okay, I've been honest, what my preconceived notions are. Okay, and that is, I believe that there is a literal millennium of a thousand years that's going to come. I believe that Jesus is going to come before that literal millennium. And not only that, but I believe that before that literal millennium, there's going to be a literal seven-year periods which is called the Tribulation Period, which is the final week of the 70 weeks that we looked at in Daniel chapter 9, if you remember that. And that I believe that Jesus is going to come before that. Now, as we went through Daniel 9, I I told you that I believe that because of Daniel 9 and Daniel chapter 7. Because Daniel chapter 7, uh, God's message to Daniel is very clear, talking about the the, uh, Most High and the saints of the Most High. That is us. But in Daniel chapter 9, he says that that vision is for your holy people, and your holy city, and your holy temple. It's for the Jews. And so those 70 weeks are for Israel and for Jerusalem. It's not for us, the saints. Okay. So I believe that somehow the saints must be gone, quote-unquote, the Gentiles must be gone, for God to once more begin working with the nation of Israel. So, that is something that I take from... The, the Old Testament, as we went through all those prophecies, and then again looking at the, the the feasts and the covenants as we looked at those, and we looked how that God said he wasn't done with Israel, but only if you could remove the sun, the moon, and the stars and destroy those, would you destroy his, his covenant with Israel. So, understanding all those things, having progressive revelation, if you would, progressive knowledge and understanding, that I understand that God said that that is true, and that he would not alter Psalm 89, he would not alter the thing that has gone out of his mouth. And so, therefore, God won't change his promise to Israel. And so, Israel's not gone and the church has supplanted it. But rather, God is going to once more work with his his people Israel once more. And so, if that's the case, then we as Gentiles will need to be removed. Well, that makes sense because as we've continued on then, and we looked at the, the teachings of Jesus, and we looked at the teachings of Paul, we saw that there was this mystery that was referred to, and that this mystery is the church. And that we saw the foundation of the mystery was the the, the turning aside from Israel for a moment to make them jealous. So that they would see that God was opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. They would say, wait a second, he's our God. And they would desire to worship God once more. And then we saw then the, the rapturing, if you would, of the church. The taking up the gathering of the church at the end where God would gather us up as well before the wrath that was to come. Now, the question that we have is, how does all that fit together as we come into the book of Revelation? The traditional dispensational pre-tribulational, okay, you're following all those words, okay? View, and you'll you'll see this if you read Tim LaHaye stuff. You'll you'll hear it if you listen to David Jeremiah, um, and many traditional dispensationalists. They believe that the rapture of the church occurs right here in verse one of chapter four. How many of you saw Jesus coming in the clouds right there? Isn't that what we... As we came through all the other prophecies, didn't we see that when G, when it was going to occur, after the, the, um, the, the, the son of perdition, the man of sin was revealed, right? Didn't we just see that in the book of Thessalonians? That Jesus was going to come in a cloud, right? And everybody was going to be caught up to meet him in the air. And it was going to be at the sounding of the... Last trumpet. Last trumpet. And we saw all this. Okay, Remember I said... To be a true biblical student, you have to study it, and you write it down, and so when you get to the book of Revelation, don't read into Revelation what you want. Okay? How many of you see any of those details that we saw as we came through all those different prophecies? None. I see none of them. The only thing I see is that a trumpet, there is a sound of a trumpet, and a voice that cries out what? Come up here. But the... But the but the voice is specific to whom he's talking to and he's talking to who John. John now could i be wrong and this could be symbolic of the rapture of the church the answer is yes i know that when i get there i'll be fine, I, i'll probably have at least one thing wrong okay uh, probably not much more than that but it'll be at least one and um, but no seriously i mean the reality is when we get there we're going to find out how wrong we were on so many things okay but straight up when bob reads the Word of God, okay, which comes into this next step we're going to be looking at. okay. When Bob reads the Word of God, literally, okay, I don't see it there. I think it is in the book of Revelation, and I think it's very clear when we see it. But it's not where most people want it to be, because most people don't want to go through the seal judgments and the, and the trumpet judgments. Okay? We want to be able to, as Americans, very clearly, we don't like the concept of persecution, and so therefore we don't want to go through any of this stuff. We want the life of ease. But go ahead and tell that to somebody who's living in Myanmar, or someone who's living in China, or someone who's living in Saudi Arabia, and they want to, they want to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And they want them getting their heads removed, or being landed in jail for a long time. Talk to believers in Vietnam. Talk to believers in North Korea. They don't have the life of luxury that we have. They understand the concept of persecution. They understand the concept of purification of the church. They understand the concept that you need to be committed, and you need to be willing to give your life for Jesus Christ. So, for them, not saying that all of them necessarily believe what I'm telling you right now. Okay, I'm not trying to state that. But, for them, they hear that they may go through some of the seal judgments, and some of the trumpet judgments, which not necessarily are judgments on us, but rather on the world, it doesn't make it's not a it's a no-brainer to them, it's okay. Because honestly, they're going through most of the stuff you're going to read about in that in those anyway. Okay? So, so I want to just answer that question real quick. And that is, do I see the rapture right here? I don't see the rapture right here. If you hold to that position, it's okay with me. In fact, I would prefer that it is right here. Okay? I won't argue at all. If Jesus wants to come at that moment, I'm very okay with that. I'm not going to argue at all. Okay? I just don't see it. The second question there as well is that as we go into John's vision, and that is, the rest of this is the second half of that, it's John's vision. From here all the way to the end is John's vision. But the question you have to ask yourself is, that is, what is the vision? Is it literal? Is it figurative? Is it symbolic? Is it allegorical? What? How should we take this? Because in Christendom today, there are multiple views of how to read Revelation. Again, we've talked about The amylinical position, the the preterist position, and how they allegorize, they figurize a lot of the stuff that's in there and say, well, this isn't really what it is. This just means this. And some of the stuff that's in Revelation very clearly is symbolic. But I believe in taking a literal interpretation of the word of God, unless literally the person is using a what? A figure of speech or symbolic language. And so when Jesus in John chapter 6 told the people that they needed to eat of his body and the drink of his blood, was he literally saying that they needed to set up a table, lay him on it, carve carve him apart so that they can eat him? Well, no, of course not. What he was giving them was a what? A figure of speech. He was giving them symbolic language. That they had to become one with who he was, with everything he is. And so the same thing with parables. Parables are a word picture that are thrown alongside some literal teaching in order to um, provide further understanding about the teaching. Now, as we then literally look at these next chapters in the book of Revelation, as we literally look at the things which are to come, we need to understand that there are going to be times when things that are very figurative and things are symbolic. Okay? But, only when we are what? We're given a clear indication that they really are that way. So, um, I challenge you, as we go through this, to have your eyes open to that. And again, since I'm not always going to be right on everything, um, as we, you know, as we have in the last couple weeks, there's been discussion, we may not get as far on some of these these topics as I come through them as I think we are. This may take longer than we, we think, but that's okay too. But as we then look into this, I think it's exciting that the very first place that the, the message of the future starts It's with God that when John is caught up <coughs> into the heavens to get the message the revelation that he is to declare to the churches regarding the things which is which are to come that it all begins in the throne of God at the throne room of God as Steve read revelation 4 did you note the common phrase That occurs over and over and over and over again. What is it? The throne of God. Throne. The throne. The throne. The throne. The throne. The throne. So, as you are studying the word of God, and you are looking for a theme, what would you say was the theme of chapter 4? The throne room. It's all about God's throne. It's all about God's throne. And so, what I want to, I guess, encourage you, I'm... I feel... Yeah, thank you. That I am not going to do an adequate job coming through this. Okay? I, I just... There's no way. I mean, I feel like Isaiah. You know, as he comes up before God and, 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 he, and, he, and he sees it and he falls on his face and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am ill-equipped to, to paint you the, the grandest of pictures that that we have in the Word of God, and that is the throne room of God. Uh, there is I found this picture on the web, and uh, it's the best picture I could find that at least gives some picture of the things that were there. And we're going to use this picture uh, throughout as we as we look at this. And so we consider the throne room of God. As we consider the throne room of God, there are three phases of it that I that I saw as we went through it, and and that is the person of God, the presence of God and then the praise of God that's going on in this. And so, first of all, we see the person of God. And in the person of God, we see the first thing is his seat. What is God's seat? We've we'll just talked about it over and over again. It is a throne. throne. Now, clearly, what is the symbolism of a throne? Why isn't God in an easy chair? Why is he rather in a throne? He Say it again, Daniel. He reigns. Yeah, he reigns. Yeah. The, the throne, a throne is symbolic of somebody who has ultimate authority. They reign over all things. God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. We can debate permissive will. We can debate decreed will. We can debate creative will. We can debate all the wills. Okay? But in the end, whether permissive ordained um, decreed, whatever God ultimately is what? is sovereign. And when I talked about the blend between that permissive will and that decreed will, the fact is even if God says, you know, that thing doesn't, it doesn't really affect anything, you know, they they have their right, the free will to choose whatever they want to choose within that. Ultimately, if God decided that it did make a difference to him at that moment, okay, and he wanted to circumvent the decision, does he have, A, the right, and B, the power to do that? and the answer is yes yes I may not ultimately understand why all things happen the way they do but I do know that God either decreed it or allowed it and he decreed it and allowed it for a purpose God sits upon the throne I don't and neither do you but too many times we want to be the one sitting on the throne We want to be the one calling the shots. But even Jesus, God in the flesh, while he's on the earth, praying to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Father, if you are willing, if there is any way that this could happen, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because even Jesus, God in the flesh, tabernacle on the earth, understood that in the Godhead, He was submissive to the Father. Blows my, my brain cells away. I, 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 it's mind-boggling. Three become one. I don't get it. I know it's true because the Word of God says so. But Jesus says, even, not my will, but your will. What about us? Do we honestly... Live the life of saying, God sits upon the throne. And it's not my will, but his that needs to happen. I think that that's the very first thing that John sees. Because it is, it's key to everything else that's going to happen. Because as John begins to get the vision, the, the, the declaration of what's going to be happening in the future. It's all based upon the fact that God is sovereign. And he has the right to decree upon this uh, land, this world, and upon the people what he chooses to decree, because we are but clay, and he is the sovereign king. Do you get that? So, a lot of people are going to debate that. A lot of people say, no, a, a, a loving God wouldn't do that. Throw it out the window. God is God, and he can do whatever he chooses to do, because it all belongs to him. Secondly, we see his similitude. And we see in his similitude that we're told that he who sat there, verse 3, and he who sat there was like a jasper stone and a sardius, in appearance. Now, we're going to take a little break here, and we're going to talk about this jasper stone and sardius, because remember I talked about the symbolism, and there is much symbolism in just this little thing. Think about it. We are told in other places what God looks like. When's the last place you've you read about Jesus, that God looked like a, a, a jasper stone in a sardis. Daniel. No? But he doesn't look like that. Now we're told that he's, he's, he's glowing. Remember the bright burning picture. But not as a jasper stone in a sardis. This is the only place it shows. And I think there's a reason for it. Uh, a twofold reason that I want to talk about. First of all, there is a symbolism of the similitude. And that is, it's symbolic of the twelve tribes of Israel. Back in the book of Exodus, chapter 28, verses 15 to 21, we read about the breastplate that's going to go upon the priest. And in this breastplate we read, You shall make the breastplate of judgment, artistically woven, according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it, of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and a fine woven linen. You shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square, a span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones, Note what the first one is. The first row shall be a what? A sardius. That sardius is representative of the tribe of uh, Reuben. A sardius. A topaz and emerald, and this shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, sapphire, and diamond. Third row, a jacinth, an agate, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper stone. The jasper stone was representative of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, and they shall be set in gold settings, and the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to the names, like the engravings of a signet. Each one having its own name, they shall be according to the twelve tribes. Now, first, I believe that we are told that there is the Jasper and the Sardius, because I think that the picture is symbolic, that God still is the God of Israel. In his very core, when you talk about your colors, you know, if, if you were to talk about Bob, and Bob's Bob was to be pictured by his colors, okay? What 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 colors? Pick two colors. What are my colors? Black and, gold. black and gold. I mean, everybody knows. This is a no-brainer. It's black and gold. I am black and gold through and through. When I bleed, I bleed black and gold. I don't bleed red, you know? And so, underneath, I've got my Steeler T-shirt on. I, no, anyways. Um, and so, I mean, everybody knows. I mean, when it comes to football time, you know, although I'm wearing Raven colors today, I am not a Ravens fan, right? So... God's colors, if you would, okay, are the colors for Israel. From the first tribe to the last tribe. Now, what's interesting in this though, is that the stones are given what? Did you know? <coughs> They're given and last. last and then first. Jesus said, the first shall come last, and the last shall come first. There is a preciousness to God in that. And so from first to last, and last to first, God is the God of Israel. But not only is it, I think, symbolic of, the colors are used there being symbolic of his relationship to the 12 tribes of Israel, but I think as well it's referring to the twin functions of Christ. First of all, we've got the, the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is made of two Greek words, Ben, Ben, and Yamin. Ben is the Hebrew word for son. Yamin is the word for right hand. Ben-Yamin is the son of my right hand. Okay? Say again. Hebrew words. Did I say Greek? Did I say Greek? I'm sorry. Hebrew words. They're Hebrew words. Ben-Yamin. and yamin. Okay? And so it's Hebrew for the son of my right hand. Now, this is important because the son of my right hand in itself, by nature, is symbolic. Is it not? And so, it is some... Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. And the stone is the Jasper Stone. Now, what's interesting is that if you can see this picture well... All those are jaspers. So you say, well, what's the color of a jasper stone? And the answer is yes. There's a myriad of colors of jasper stones. However, the Bible, again, you can spiritual things with spiritual things. The Bible defines what, the, what God uses as the qualification of a jasper stone. And in Revelation 21, we read, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So when God uses, and the, the, refers to the, the concept of a jasper, you can picture a crystal if you would. Okay? That's the kind of the concept of there. It's a whitish, clear substance. That's what a crystal is, right? And that's the picture that God is using when he comes to the jasper. Now, this is important because symbolically, we're talking about the authority of Jesus Christ. The authority of Jesus Christ is pure. The authority of Jesus Christ is based upon his holiness, if you would. Think about it. If God was not a holy God, what would his authority, the use of his authority be like? Like man's use of authority. That's exactly right. And over over again, we're told in the word of God that that God is not like man and God does not show partiality. God is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't change his judgments. God is consistent. God is faithful. God is impartial. <coughs> and so, in the same way, so is Jesus Christ. And we're told, then, as the son of my right hand, is the picture of authority. And we're told that Jesus Christ will be sitting at the, the seat of, uh, on the right hand of God. In fact, Jesus himself, telling to, talking to the Sanhedrin, says to him, he says, As soon as it was day, Luke 22, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, if you are the Anointed One, if you are Mashiach, tell us so. But he said to them, Jesus said, If I tell you, you will by no means believe it. If I told you, you're not going to believe it anyway. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. But hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. What is Jesus Christ saying? He has all power. He has all authority. He will be sitting at the right hand of God. We're told in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, looking up, when he was being stoned, he looked up and the heavens were open. And what did he see? He saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Again, we're told in Romans 8, in the, 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 the part of who can deliver us from the love of God. Well, we're told, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also written, risen, who is even at the right hand of God. And then 1 Peter 3, 22. Peter says it as well. So we have Jesus speaking. We have Luke speaking. We have Paul speaking. We have Peter speaking. All in our agreement that Jesus Christ right now is where? The right hand of God. So I believe, again, this Jasper stone, symbolic of the tribe of Benjamin, or Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand, is symbolic of this authority of Jesus Christ, which is his um, side, if you would, of judgment, that he is the the judge of the earth as well. He is the authority. When people, we're told that in Second Corinthians chapter five, that when you die, you will go before the judgment seat of of Christ. Okay, he has all authority. All judgment has been given to him. Okay, and so that's him. And secondly, we're told then Reuben, Reuben is again a. Uh, a Hebrew word, which is made of two Hebrew words, Ru and Bean. And Ru means to behold, being means the Son. So "Reuben" means behold the Son. Behold the Son. And so when um, John the Baptist was, was standing there, and Jesus came along, he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus was being baptized, we heard the voice From heaven, that is God the Father speaking. And he says what? This is my son. Behold the son. Behold my son, in whom I am well pleased. I think, again, that Reuben is symbolic, um, along with his stone, the Sardius stone, which is a blood red in color. It's a lot of times referred to as a ruby. It has a blood red color. And I think it is symbolic of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I think the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ... Is then the culmination? Is the, the the fullness of his his love? There is such a tender balance between the the holiness of God and the love of God, the authority of God and the mercy of God, the grace of God. There is the balance between the two that goes on, that's there. And so Jesus Christ, the two twin, the twin functions of Jesus Christ is both as in his authority and in his sacrifice for us as well, which is his holiness and his love, which we're going to see in a moment as we look at not just the one who's on the throne, but now the presence of, of the one who's sitting on the throne, the presence of God, what is going on in his presence? Because we go back to the throne over God, and we see that surrounding the throne, encircling the throne, okay, is your word there, encircling is your word, encircling the throne, first we see a rainbow, is encircling, and, and that's the, the Greek word there, really is the word for encircling, making a circle around. And so that's why it's pictured up here as a circle going about it. But it said that this rainbow was also looking like a what? An emerald. Now, the rainbow goes all the way back to what? To a promise, to a covenant that God made. To who? Who did God make a covenant with? To Noah. That's exactly right. All right, Chris, what was, the, uh, what was the covenant about? What was the covenant to Noah all about? What did he tell us? That God would never flood the whole earth, the whole earth. You sure? You sure that God said that he, it wasn't that he, he would never judge the earth again? Is that what he said? That God said, I'll never judge the earth again, right? He, said he never, flooded. They never flooded again. Very good. That's exactly right. Because a lot of people, again, like to misconstrue that. God didn't say that he would never judge the earth. God said he would never judge it again by flood. He would never flood the earth again. Okay, now, as you picture a rainbow, how many sides does the rainbow have? Yeah. Think about it. When you see a rainbow, what do you see? You see a rainbow in a circle, right? No, you see what? It's not. It's usually, It's not really even a, cir- a circle. It's not even half a circle. It's more of an ova or whatever. Okay, but it has two. You got the bottom over here, and you got the bottom over there. I kind of like to picture this as again those twin functions concept. Okay, because that covenant that God made with Noah, okay, came on the heels of God doing what? Okay, is the cup half empty or half full? You guys tell me it came on the heels of God judging the earth. I want to tell you that it came on the heels of God saving Noah. And delivering him from from the judgment that was to come. Because Noah found what? Grace. Favor in the eyes of God. And we're told that Noah also preached to the people. How many people could have been saved on that ark? Everybody that got on it. I don't think God held it back. I think that as God... Or as Noah took 100, 120 years to build that ark, and, and, and the testimony, the sign, the symbol, the the uh, witness was there before everybody that as he discussed it and told them that judgment was coming on the earth and God was going to be sending a flood that people had the had the privilege of responding and of repenting, changing the way they thought, and then, and then helping Noah with the job and getting on the ark with them. And so I think when I look at that rainbow, I see, the, the, again, the two sides of the coin of salvation. And that is, you, on the one side, you can respond. And the other side, there's what? There's judgment. And so, as that rainbow circles around the throne of God, I think it's symbolic to us that, to remind us that God remembers his promises. And his promise was not just judgment. His promise was also salvation. <clears throat> and so, as I look to God... The first thing I'm told about encircling about him is his faithfulness. God is faithful. God will be true to the promises and the covenants that He makes with us. Christopher, don't worry about don't worry about why they look like that. Because some because the artist decided to draw them way. Okay, and we'll get to them a little bit later on as we talk about them. Okay. So, we talk about the rainbow, it was like an emerald. But also, encircling the throne were the ones that Christopher wants to talk about. And that is the 24 thrones. And on the 24 thrones that are about them, again, thrones are symbols of authority. Okay? So, these are lesser thr- thrones. But there's 24 of them encircling the main throne. And on them, we see that there are twelve chiefs, 12 chiefs of Israel and the 12 apostles. Okay. Again, showing symbolically, very clearly, that God is not only the God of Israel, He's the God of the church. And before God, it is is a continued process. There There is a continuation. Let me ask you this question quickly. Before Moses, how were you saved? I mean, during the days of Moses, were you saved by the law? No. That's exactly right. How were you saved during the days of the law? By faith. By faith. The law was just to point out that we couldn't do it. And so, how were they saved before the the law was given? By faith. We know that from the book of Romans, right? That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Okay? And so, it has always been based upon faith. Faith has always been consistent. And so, To me, again, this picture coming through with these these um um the twenty-four elders, note that all the twenty-four elders are wearing white robes, and all the twenty-four elders have a what? A crown of gold. The the twelve from Israel aren't dressed differently. They're not dressed like shepherds with nothing on their heads, but the those who are of the church, they got white robes and they got a crown of gold, right? But rather all those who come to God by faith are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and are given a crown of righteousness, which they will have the opportunity to do what with? Yeah. Cast at his feet. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just they have the privilege of taking the crown and laying it as, as a gift. I, mean, what can I, I have nothing to give Him anyway. The only thing I can give God is what? What he's, given what he's already given me. Isn't that awesome? You know, but He gives it to me so that I can do what? I can feel like I have something to to give to Him. What about your checkbook? I don't preach a lot of giving. But the fact is, it's still there, isn't it? What do you have that you have not received? And yet, why is it so hard for us to open up the, the strings a little bit and give what He's given to me? You know what? When I get there... He won't give me ten crowns, and I can just take off the top one and give it to him and keep nine for myself. But rather, I'm going to take that which he's given to me and I'm going to lay it back down. And it won't be a trial. It'll be something that I want to do. I want to give it back to him. And so encircling the throne, we see a rainbow and we see the twenty-four thrones. Okay? Now we look at proceeding from the throne. What's coming out of the throne? Well, clearly coming out of the throne we see that there's lightnings and thunderings and voices. When you picture power in nature, what would you, what would you picture it as? How would you, what, what would you use to show the greatness of power? It's a thunderstorm. I mean, there are some nice little rains. Like this morning we're having a nice little rain. Yesterday we're having a nice rain. That was nice and mild. But you've gone <coughs> through it when the, the trees are going like this, right? And, and and all of a sudden right over your house, at the same time you see the light, you see, you hear what? <coughs> Doesn't it just have this sobering effect upon you? It's kind of a whoa. whoa, whoa. I remember um, years ago, I think you were pregnant with Andrew? When we were we me we and the kids were out camping without you? It was Andrew? So so Andrew's seven, so that was about seven or eight years ago. We were out camping in our, our grand height of a tent and, and the, the storm came in. A thunderstorm came in. A nasty thunderstorm came in. And we heard it from a distance coming and coming and coming. And what do you begin to do? You pray, right? <laughs> and you say, Lord, what? Let the storm go someplace else. And so it didn't. It kept coming and coming. And we you know it's raining and, and it's and it's starting to, to have thunder and lightning. And I'm debating as a dad what to do. I was on the phone with Marcia, the the ask her to pray for us, you know, so I have some wisdom of what to do. And as I was on the phone with her, what happened on your end? Do you remember? It went dead. We had one hit like that right when the light and the, and the sound were right together. It had a profound effect upon me. Uh, the, the phone died and I snatched the kids and said what? Anybody remember? Anybody guys? Head to the van. Get in the van now. And so we spent the next half hour to an hour, two hours, whatever it is. It was a long time, wasn't it? In the van. I was I was sobered by the thunders and lightnings. I had great respect for the, for the, for the, for the, the sound of God uh, that was over us. Now, I think it's interesting that we have this lightnings and this thunderings, which is this... The sound of, um, of power being displayed. But then we're told that there were also what? Voices. Voices. And God's voice is, as it were, the sound of many waters. And it is thundering in and of itself. But I think the contrast is being brought here. Not that just a, it's a thundering voice, but I think that even with the thundering that God still has, the ability to what? Communicate. In the still small voice. That there are times when God still just, he doesn't thunder at us, but that he what? He just talks. He speaks. And there are voices that proceed out. I don't think that when God spoke about Jesus being um, um, baptized, that he sounded like he was angry. Says my son, in whom I am well pleased. And w- would you get that out of it, Andrew? I love you. I'm gonna kill you. I love you. You know, I mean, it just that doesn't make sense, does it? But guys, when your wife, when you tell your wife you love her, she wants to have a little inflection in it, doesn't? She? I mean, I love you, honey. You know, the monotonous I love you, honey. She says what? Yeah, right. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, what do you want? Okay. And so I think that, you know, there is this voice that comes out. I think that God speaks to us. And God is gentle with us as well. And he, and he speaks with us as well. And that's the, the idea of that. So that was proceeding from the throne of God. And then we move on to before, what is before the throne of God. And we see that there are seven lamps of fire. We talked about this as we went through the, the, uh, the, the letters to the churches about the, the seven spirits of God, which come from the book of Isaiah. And so you can go back and look at that. But there's the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, um, and so forth. And those are the, the, uh, the fires, if you can kind of see them in here, the, the fires that are before God. And then we're also told that before him, there is a sea of glass. And this kind of looks like a floor, but the idea is that, that it's a sea of glass, and it's like crystal, because it is what? It's pure, but it's calm. Have you ever been in the water... When it's all choppy and, and the winds are up, you would never call that what as looking like glass. But have you ever been out there when there doesn't seem to be a wind at all, and it just looks like you could almost walk on it, you know, it just almost looks like a, like a like a floor? Get okay, George. What? Just like glass. Just just pure out there, and um and so that's the picture that that we're given is that it's a sea of glass And... And in, in my mind, when I picture that sea of glass, and I picture the calmness of it, I put it in contrast to, I always miss, mess the psalm up, I don't think it's 37, no, it's not 37. Which is the psalm that says, the, 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 sea, the mountains be thrown into the sea, the hills be removed. You understand the psalm. My, my mind's not coming up with the, the, the proper number. But anyways, yet I will remember what? the mountains be cast into the sea and the earth be removed yet I will what well, no I, I will remember that God I will remember that, that I will be still and know that he is God God is still on the throne and here we are in a throne room is there anything think about it is there anything that can disturb the sea of God's presence the answer is no in, Reve- in Revelation. in Romans chapter five in Romans chapter five, we read about how that we can have this peace with God. In fact, turn there with me in Romans 5, it's a great picture. Romans 5, we read, "Therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ." through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by this Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now the picture there is that we can have this peace. With God. That we can come into his presence and we can have this peace. And it says then we have access by Jesus Christ. The word for access there is the Greek word referring to the breakwater. The the, the entrance between the breakwaters. And so if you picture a sea that is tumultuous. And then a, a ship is out there on the sea. And then in order to get into the peaceful waters of the harbor... He's got to do what? He's got to enter in through the, the breakwaters. <clears throat> Down in Florida, as we were come, we come over this bridge all the time, there was a, a little entrance into a, a harbor area. You had the, the the Gulf of Mexico out there with all of its... <sighs> but on the other side of us, there was the, the peaceful waters, because the ships had to come through under the bridge into the, the harbor. The picture is that Jesus Christ is that access point. He is the entrance between the breakwaters. And that we go from the tumultuous seas of life into the still presence of God. And we get there through Jesus Christ. And so in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Be anxious or troubled for nothing, but in all things, or with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made unto God, and the peace of God, shall keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. That if we come through Christ, laying all of our tumultuous life and our troublesome uh, anxieties down, that we can enter into the what? The calm and the peace of God. It's a beautiful picture to me, um, when I consider the fact that when I, if I come to God and I lay it at his feet, he has what? Waiting for me. Peace and tranquility. If I am suffering from anxiety, if I'm suffering from trial trial and tribulation that I can't deal with, okay, I understand there's going to be tribulation in the world, but I'm supposed to be of what? Good cheer, because he has overcome the world. And so I can experience that peace and the tranquility that God has given to us. Now, that is before the throne. And then we're also told that um, surrounding the throne are these four uh, living creatures. And these living creatures are flying as Isaiah saw them. They have six wings. And we know that, as Isaiah told us, with two of the wings they cover their feet, and with two of the wings they cover their faces, and with two of the wings they, they fly about. And they cry out, watch, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Now, again, in the Hebrew, they don't necessarily have words for good, better, and best. But if you're going to show an importance of something, you you state it multiple times. You state it multiple times. You state it multiple times to show what? This was important. And so Jesus says, not truly I say to you, but rather he says, truly, truly I say to you. This is really truth. This is a faithful saying this isn't just somebody talking. This is true. And so God is referred to both in the book of Isaiah and here as not just holy. And not just holy, holy. But he is holy, holy, holy. If we were to bring that into our vernacular, into English. He's not just holy. He's not just holier. He is holiest and so the, the angels the, 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 these four living beasts they cry out holy, holy, holy and so we move then into his praise as we go into the and I'm skipping their appearance we, we've talked about that before um, but they, they each have a unique appearance um, a lion, a calf, a, a man and a, um, an eagle but it's what they then do They're praised. These guys, they cry out the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And his holiness is tied to what? Look at what they say. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who what? Who was and is and is to come. Now, that as well is tied with who else? Jesus. Jesus. That's exactly right. It's an amazing thing. And so we're going to look at chapter 5 next week, Lord willing, and we're going to see that the Lamb comes from the midst of the throne. Which means that he was on the throne. And so if the Lamb is on the throne, and he comes from the midst of the throne, and now we're told that one who was and is and is to come, who is God? It's Jesus Christ. And he is set apart like no other are set apart. Again, the word... For holy is to, meet, to be set apart. This is the Hagios Biblios. This is the, the book that is set apart. It is set apart because it is God's word. But God is set apart. And what's interesting is that when we come to Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're called what? Saints. Which is the, from the Greek Hagios, which is set apart ones. And so even Peter tells us to be holy, even as he is holy if God is the holiest of all, how much sin is to be found in the presence of that throne room? None. How content am I though allowing sin in the throne room of my life? If He is to be sitting upon my throne of my heart, and I am supposed to be the temple Of the Holy Spirit. The temple of God. Is this pictures. Picturing my heart. Holy. 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 Lord God Almighty. Who was and is. And is to come. Or is it. Complacent. 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 The one who loved me by His grace and allows me to do whatever I choose. It's interesting that those who are in His presence have got it all together. And would be that we don't have to wait till we get into His presence to fully comprehend the holiness of God. And then we see the praise from the 4 and 20 elders crying out the worthiness of God. And they say, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Note the result of God's worthiness. Because God is worthy, he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. But even more importantly to you and I, what's the cause of it? What causes God's worthiness? Why is he worthy to receive all these things? He created all things. How did he create them all? By his will. By his word and by his will. God formed us. He breathed into us the breath of life. But it was according to his, again, his, his will. It goes all the way back to the throne. God chose, God determined that he would make man. And that he would make man in his own image, in his likeness. God made you a spirit being for a purpose. To reflect him and to praise him. To have fellowship with him. To glorify Him. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. It is by God's will that you are here today. What do you do with it? What do you do with the breath of life that He allows you to have? The four and twenty elders, when they're in the presence of God, they've got it down pat they understand that their purpose for existence is to glorify God. To worship Him. And so, in closing, I ask you, how have you pictured God's throne room? Have you? Have you even considered the holiness of God? And what it would be like? Secondly, how important is the worthiness and holiness of God to you? And then finally, you were created by his hand, by his will. Truly, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Have you given him the worship and praise that is rightfully his? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, truly, I have not glorified you in every aspect of my life. Forgive me for that, Father. Help me to learn to set aside my desires. To bring them under full submission. To your will. To your glory. Lord I pray that you would help me to walk in the spirit. That I would not fulfill the lust of my flesh. Knowing that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So that I cannot do the things that I would. Apart from being in you. Lord help me to to glorify you. In all that I am. Lord I pray. That as you spoke. While you were here on the earth. That you are spirit. And that you desire us to worship you in spirit and truth. And that you are seeking such to worship you. Lord help us to be those who desire to worship you in spirit and in truth we look forward to the time of your return but God I pray that we would not sit complacently waiting for Christ's return or for the day of our death but that we would be vibrant we would be genuine we would be fruitful in the service of the king seeking to glorify you with our words and our works. That we would be like cities that are set upon a hill whose light cannot be hid. That others would be able to observe the works which you do through us and be drawn to your glorious name. (coughs) We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take some time to declare the, the holiness to God together and turn to number three, hymn three, Holy Holy, holy. Let's stand together as we sing.